You're listening to episode 155 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. Hey, what's up, storytellers? I am so excited to release today's episode featuring Julie Dow. Not only does Julie share incredible wisdom and advice throughout our entire conversation, but she also shares a helpful writing prompt that's exclusive for our community, and it's available on her show notes page as a downloadable bonus. Now, before we jump right into her episode, I have some Patreon membership-related news to share. All super storytellers signed up at our Silky Chickens with Balloons tier or Snails with Mail tier get early access to interviews and also get access to the deleted audio that you can't find elsewhere. We have confirmed episode air dates for author Naomi Novik and literary agent Tao Lei set for the month of May. Patrons at the Silky Chickens with Balloons tier or Snails with Mail tier get access to their interviews right now. We'll be releasing early access interviews for our patrons for future upcoming interviews with guests like Samantha Shannon and many more. If you're not yet a super storyteller and you'd love early access to these interviews in addition to other cool benefits, head on over to patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea and become a patron at the Silky Chickens with Balloons tier or our Snails with Mail tier. Again, that's patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea. By the way, in case you're wondering, becoming a proud patron of 88 Cups of Tea is the best way to support the show right now. If you'd love to show support in another way, I would be so grateful if you could tell two of your friends about 88 Cups of Tea and let them know about your favorite episodes so they know which one to start listening to. It would be awesome if you tag us at 88 Cups of Tea on social media whenever you're telling your friends about us, whether that's on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, or send them a good old-fashioned email or a text about your favorite 88 Cups of Tea episode and why you think they should listen to that episode. Even if it's a quick, hello, friend, you gotta listen to this episode from 88 Cups of Tea because I think it'll help you during your querying process and put a smile on your face. Okay, miss you, bye. (laughs) Or something like that. But seriously, thank you so much for helping me get the word out about 88 Cups of Tea and growing our community together. Now on to today's guest featuring Julie Dow. She's most recognized for her debut novel, Forest of a Thousand Lanterns, and her newly released sequel, Kingdom of the Blazing Phoenix. In her episode, Julie walks us through the ups and downs of her querying and publishing journey, all while sharing invaluable advice on picking yourself back up after hearing no and pushing through that rejection. She also talks about the importance of bringing forth Asian American representation in her stories, gives a sneak peek into her writing process, and shares great tips for writers to reach their writing goals. Now let's jump right in. I'm excited just to start all the way and backtrack, if that's okay with you. Sure. How you first fell in love with storytelling and what first inspired you? Absolutely. Um, I am Vietnamese American. I grew up in an immigrant family. Both of my parents came over from Vietnam separately back in the mid-70s when the communists took over the country. So it was a good time to escape. They got out of the country, came to the U.S., and they met and fell in love here in um, New York, which is where their families both were. I was the oldest of three kids that they had, 
and I have two younger brothers and they were always into math and science, but I was kind of the black sheep of my family. I was always the one who was into reading and writing and it just came so naturally. People would just buy me books for my birthday and for Christmas. And I think of nothing better to do than to sit down and just read them and get lost in these worlds. Books felt like doors to me that I could open and just walk right into Narnia or to Middle Earth or Hogwarts. And when I was eight or nine, I decided, you know, why don't I try to write something of my own? Why don't I try to imitate all these stories that I've read and try to make a door into a world of my own? And when I was nine years old, I wrote my first novel. It was called The Hidden Kingdom. (laughs) I was in the fourth grade. I had two best friends named Katie and Talia. And The Hidden Kingdom was basically self-gratification. It was just me inserting myself and my friends into this ridiculous story. (laughs) So it was about me, Katie, and Talia having a sleepover at my house. And at midnight, we came downstairs to get a midnight snack. And we see that my living room TV is glowing. And we walk over there and we discover that it's this portal that only opens at midnight. And it takes us to this land of flying unicorns and rivers of orange soda and merry-go-rounds that spit out donuts for some reason. (laughs) And it was just a really fun thing to do. And after that, I was addicted. I was addicted to writing. I could not get over the fact that I had created something from my head and other people were actually enjoying reading it. Other people being my teachers and my mom (laughs) who were encouraging of me when I was little. My parents were super encouraging when I was younger. They bought me journals, they bought me diaries, and they basically fueled my passion for reading and writing. But when I started getting older, it got different. (laughs) They changed their opinion about Mm. the reading and writing thing because, you know, many Asian parents believe that the only lucrative fields that their children should enter are in the STEM fields. So they wanted me in particular to be a doctor. They gave me a choice between being a neurosurgeon and a heart surgeon. So they're very generous with their choices. (laughs) (laughs) But in high school and college, I stopped writing completely, completely just to please them. And you know how you know, when you fall in love at a young age, people all around you will tell you, no, you're too young. You don't have enough experience to know what you want yet. But it was like that for me in writing. I felt like I had this passion that I had known of ever since I was a little girl. And my parents were telling me, no, you don't know that. You haven't experienced other professions yet. You haven't experienced other fields of study. You don't know that you love writing. And besides, it won't make you any money. And so I sort of let that get into my head. And I stopped writing completely when I was a teenager. And in college, I decided to major in pre-med biology, which is like the most stupid thing I could ever have done because I'm not good at math. I love science, but I'm not good at it either. Like they're just not my natural inclinations. That's not where my natural abilities lie. And college, I would say, were four of the most unhappy years of my entire life. I just felt like I had turned my back on something that I had loved so dearly, the only thing that I was ever good at. And I felt like I was being someone else. I was living someone else's life and someone else's dream. And so when I was 21, I told my mom the truth. I told her that I was extremely unhappy, that I did not want to go to medical school. And she convinced me to hang on, to find a job in a field that I got my biology degree in, just to make sure that the degree wasn't completely worthless, that we had all of this money. (laughs) You need to suddenly go off and write all the stories. 
so when I was 21, I got a job in a neuroscience lab. Jeez. Yeah, I was just a basic lab rat. So this is something a lot of people don't know is that there is a whole subset of people out there for whom the fruit fly is king. It's Drosophila melanogaster. People are so into all of the genes of this fruit fly and into, you know, like propagating different like fruit fly lines. So I was working in research on fruit flies for mercury poisoning. But at night and on the weekends, I decided to turn back to writing because I sat down, I had this long talk with myself because I talk to myself like any, you know, regular writer, any stereotypical author. And I told myself, the last time I remember being happy was when I had written stories, was when I had been reading and writing without fear, without letting anyone hold me back. And so I decided, why don't I start writing again? But this time I'm going to put my work online to see if I really have something, to see if people would actually like what I have, the way that my teachers and my friends in school liked my writing. I thought that they were just humoring me back then. So I thought, okay, this is my chance to give it a try. So what I did was I started writing fan fiction. I started writing Harry Potter fan fiction because I'm a huge Potterhead. And I'm not going to say which site I was on or what my username (laughs) is because I don't really want those works coming out now because they were very preliminary. I was still learning the craft. I wasn't secure in my you know, shaping of the narrative and of the characters yet, but I wanted to try it. And so I went on this Harry Potter fan fiction website. I had this complete pseudonym. I didn't show my picture anywhere. And I just started writing whatever came to mind. I wrote stories that were set in Harry Potter's timeline, stories that were set in his parents' timeline, and people started reading my work. More and more reviews started coming in for some reason. People told their friends, and these were complete strangers who had no idea who I was, what my real name was, and they were coming in and telling me how much they loved my writing. By the end of that year on that Harry Potter fan fiction site, my book won the best novel of the year amongst millions of other stories that were on there. And I thought to myself, I have something here. This is probably something that I should be pursuing because people who don't know who I am, they don't know anything about me. They're actually enjoying my work. So why don't I try to get published? And that was how the whole thing began. It was like a big circle coming back to where I had started and realizing that this was probably what I was meant to be doing all along. So you were about like what? This was during time where you had your job, the neuroscience lab, and then you discovered this uh, fan fiction writing. So I'm assuming like 22, 23? Exactly. I was 22 or 23. And um, I really wanted to start trying to get published because I had never looked into seriously doing it before since my parents had always discouraged me from actively finding an agent or anything like that. So around the age of 22, 23 was when I started a blog online. It was just a regular blogger blog back in the days of when (laughs) people would put their lives online. I don't think it's as big as it was then. Is it like live journal? It's like live journal. Exactly. I was on live journal in college as well, but people would just you know, put diary entries online about their daily lives and all this stuff. And I sort of stumbled headfirst into the writing community, into this community of people who were aspiring authors, who had these blogs about their struggles about trying to get published. 
And I fell into their community very easily. I made a lot of friends by just commenting on other people's blogs and connecting with these other people who felt the same way that I did about writing. I had never found that in my life. None of my friends ever wrote or read, and obviously no one in my family did. So it felt like finding my people at last. I felt so seen and understood. And I still have friends today from those blog entries, from those blogs that I had stumbled upon. And it's just a wonderful community of people that I had found. And I felt so lucky because that was where I started learning about what agents were, what querying was, what were editors. (laughs) You know, I didn't know the difference between agents and editors. That's how uneducated I was about the whole process. But over time, as I read these blogs and I started talking to these people, I discovered more and more about the publishing industry. It gave me confidence. It gave me more knowledge and power to try and achieve my dream at last that I had had for so long. Okay, I'm super curious here. I'm going to interject myself if you don't mind. Sure. I'm coming from a lens, obviously, as an Asian American as well. How did you know when to tell your parents? And, you know, our parents, they want proof. You know what I mean? Right. So it's like almost like further <laughs> tangible proof to be like, let me collect a little bit more, a little bit more accolades, and then it'll keep them quiet and finally turn them around to be super supportive. So when was that breaking point for you? It was when I got published. <laughs> Oh my God, you're joking. I'm not joking. When you published Forest of a Thousand Lanterns? Yes, (gasps) yes. Wait, okay, that was published last year. Yep. (laughs) 2016 was when I got the book deal. That's when I told my mom. Holy moly, what? Do you mind me asking how many years was that from the time that you were 22, 23 discovering fan fiction? How many years? Because I know you mentioned your journey was a long one for publishing. So how many years was that? I started when I was 21, 22, 23, um, and I didn't get my book deal until I was 30. So it was about a good eight years or so that I kept it a secret and I didn't tell my parents because as you mentioned, Yin, and I totally know that you understand this. Yes. Asian parents want proof. Yes. They want to see the money. They're like, I want to see your book in Barnes & Noble. Then we will talk. I want to <laughs> see the check. I want to see the check that tells me that this is a worthwhile endeavor. Yes. because. It's not getting paid. Why are you doing it? I want to see some rent money here. (laughs) Not even rent. It's like retirement money for yourself. I want to see your 401k. I want to see the house that you're going to buy us when we're old. (laughs) Oh my God. Yes. Oh my gosh. That just reminds me so much of my own parents where I'm just like, even in my own craft in artistry, that was specifically acting. Even when I had great checks coming in, my mom would still be like, well, what's your backup plan? What's next? You know, like (laughs) even though she was as supportive as she could be and my dad, my dad still thought it was a hobby even though he flew out for a red carpet premiere. I'm like, wait, is this not enough for you guys? And it just just felt like I could never reach their acceptance level, like full, a thousand percent acceptance. Don't get me wrong. They, uh, they accepted, but to the point where, you know, our parents are very well-intentioned, well-meaning for them. If they're like, oh my gosh, my children, they have all these opportunities that we didn't have. Why would they throw it away with artistry where, you know, back in our cultures, I'm sure you're, you, I know you're Vietnamese, but right. I'm, you know, Chinese, Malaysian, but I think it's similar where for them, it's like, wait, why would you choose that when we work so hard to sacrifice all of that? So 
so that you didn't have to be at that level of, you know, almost like begging for money in their perspective. But for us, it's like, nah, we can be like the next JK Rowling, sort of, hopefully. <laughs> That's right. You know what I'm like? You have no idea. But yeah, so like I completely get that. And I cannot believe you waited till you were 30 to tell them when your book deal went through. Can you walk me through that moment you maybe called your mom or sat her down? Like, I don't know how it really works, but if the book deal goes through where you sent a check, did you like show her the check? Like, look, mom, like, please, before you scold me, look at the check first and then I'll explain. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, everything that you said is so true. It's all about security for our parents. They worked so hard to bring us here. And back home in in their homelands, they weren't able to afford to dream. That is the bottom line. Exactly. And when we come over here, they don't understand that it's a different world now, that you can be secure and still follow your dreams. Um, So I had all of that in mind throughout the eight years that I kept this a secret. I think my mom knew. I think she had always known that I was unhappy. I think she knew that being pre-med made me sad. Um, But she was always sort of the stereotypical obedient wife in that whatever my dad said went and she would just go along with it. I think it's also hard because he's the one I'm assuming then in that way of traditional Asian parent. That means your dad was also the moneymaker, the breadwinner. He was the moneymaker. She also had a full-time job and she brought up kids and all that, but he was definitely the one with the principal income coming in. He was an engineer. That's the thing. I think you can understand when I say, usually it's like whoever brings in the principal and it's expected that the man should, when, you know, with our parents' generation and especially grandparents' generation, it's like almost leverage where the women feel like they can't say much, even though they're doing just as much and more because there's kids on top of your mom's job, you know, like that's just crazy. Yeah. Absolutely. What you said is completely true. She wasn't the main principal lead of the house or the head of the house, as as they say traditionally. And so she felt like she couldn't back me up. But they did end up getting divorced when I was 21 or 22, around the same time that I started writing. And it's funny that I started writing around that time now that I'm thinking about it, because around that time, I stopped talking to my dad as much. And so I'm wondering if the fact that he was the one who was principally the one who kept telling me not to write, now that he wasn't in my life as much, I felt like I could turn back. I had that freedom to go back to my passion. Mm -hmm. And so even though my mom, I had this feeling that she had always supported me throughout those years, I didn't tell her because I was afraid of disappointing her. And I know that you understand that too, that sinking feeling of I'm doing something that won't make them happy, that might make them disappointed in me. And so that's... That's why I decided to keep my attempts at getting published secret. And I'm really glad I did because it took me so long. It took me eight years, Yin, to get an agent. Lucky number eight. See, forget about three times a charm, okay? Lucky number eight. That's how it goes. That's right. (laughs) That's right. But I had so much trouble getting agents to even look at me. I wrote, I think before Force of a Thousand Lanterns, I wrote about six or seven other projects. But I queried queried only about two of them. But each time, you know, every time I sent them out, agents would come back and tell me, you know, you've got something here. You're talented. They would take the time to leave me personalized rejections, but they were rejections. (laughs) They weren't any offers of representation or anything like that. 
And so it was just a really hard time where I was wondering whether my parents had been right all along, that this was completely pointless, that I didn't have the talent, I didn't have what it took, that all I would ever amount to would be a fan fiction writer, which is, there's no shame in that. I love fan fiction, respect it so much. But I thought like that was where my journey would end, would just be writing stuff for people online who didn't know me and not being able to put my name on it, never seeing my name in a bookstore, which was my ultimate dream. But eventually, at the end of those eight years, I wrote a book that was about a music school set in France. And it was about an Asian American girl who was a violinist. And it was this cutthroat sort of competition at this Juilliard-like school. I loved that book with all my heart. And that was the book that eventually got me my agent, Tamar Rudzinski. I initially met her on PitMed. See, she represents authors like Sarah J. Mass and Danielle Jensen, who I have always looked up to, and I love those authors. And I just never felt like I was worthy of querying her, so I never sent her any queries for any projects that I had. But I decided to enroll in this online contest. It's on Twitter. It's called PitMed, and it's run by Brenda Drake, an author. And a lot of people join in. And I think back in that day, we only had 140 characters on Twitter to pitch our book with. Nowadays, it's 280. But back in that day, you only had 140 characters in your tweet to share about the book that you had and to tell what genre and try to make agents want to read it. And so I decided to just send out a few bunch of tweets that day, just randomly. I was still working full-time. And to my surprise, Tamar Rudzinski requested the first 10 pages in a query. 10 pages in a query became 50 pages. Wow. 50 pages became 100 pages. 100 pages became the full manuscript. And by the end of 2014, she and about, I would say, 15 other agents were reading the full manuscript of this <gasps> book that I... Oh my God, belated congratulations. Thank you. That's exciting. The thing is that I had been through the ringer so many times that I was telling myself that all of these would end in rejections. I was telling myself that this wasn't going to go anywhere, that I had been trying for so long and this would just be another dead end. Because as the year ended, as 2014 ended, I started getting all of these rejections. Some of them were form, most of them were personalized. But I think that Tamar and two other agents were the only ones who were reading it starting at the beginning of 2015. And I actually thought about giving up. I thought about completely just stopping trying to get published, just try to put my stuff online and get a readership that way, because that was the only way that I was ever going to see my dream come true in a way in that my work would be read by people I didn't know. But in February 2015, after this period of intense depression and low self-esteem, Tamara Rudzinski emailed me and she said she wanted to talk to offer me representation. Oh, my God. <laughs> Imagine how much I cried, how much I cried that day that I had finally been validated by someone who was so amazing as Tamar. And finally, all of these years had culminated
Damn. Okay. Can I jump in super quick here? Because before I lose my train of thought, before you came up with Forest of a Thousand Lanterns was the story about the violinist, Asian American violinist, which is super cutthroat. I mean, a girl, I understand because I was taking piano before. (laughs) I'm just like, oh my God, it's like my twin sister. So what were the other six or seven projects? Were they full manuscripts when you mentioned you had six or seven projects way before Forest of a Thousand Lanterns? Were they also centered around Asian American characters? Because I noticed a lot of Asian American writers mention, like, you know, in the beginning, they write these stories and then they realize, wait, I don't even see anyone that reflects me because I keep bouncing off what I've absorbed growing up, which was only white people at the center of the story and us being sidekicks slash best friends or never even there. Um, And then they eventually found their voice and saw themselves in their own stories after several different manuscripts. So do you mind if I unpack that a little bit and just kind of go from there, like from the six and seven projects, did it always center around someone that looked like us or did it eventually get there? That's a great question. The stories that I wrote when I was younger all featured white people, all featured white main characters. But during the time when I was 22 or 23, turning back to writing, even though my lead characters were usually white, I had a supporting character that I always loved who was Asian. Now that you say that, I'm looking back and realizing Mm. because one of those six or seven projects that I had just mentioned was called Pumpkin Patch Princess. And it's actually up on Wattpad for free. It's a middle grade story. And it's about a white girl who is a teenager and she enrolls in this internship to learn how to become a fairy godmother. But the fairy godmother who trains her is this kick-ass Asian woman. And I absolutely loved writing her. She's so spunky, so smart, and she dealt with the weight of her family's expectations. So I feel like even then, even before I had completely turned into the author that I am today, the person who wants to bring forth my story and honor my culture, I was unpacking some of the stuff in my past within my stories, within these supporting characters. And it wasn't until recently that I felt comfortable about bringing Asians to the forefront, to making them the main characters. And I don't know why it took me so long, because when I started writing Force of a Thousand Lanterns, I thought to myself, why haven't I been putting heroines who are Asian mm-hmm. at the forefront of the stories? Because it's something I've been complaining about all these years. I never see any characters who look like me in books or in TV or in movies. Why am I, too, perpetuating this complete wrong that I've been led to believe is the right thing. And so that's when I really started putting Asians toward the forefront. But you're correct that the six or seven projects or so usually featured white characters. Okay, gotcha. You had your own awakening with Forest of a Thousand Lanterns. You're like, why the hell not? Why the hell not have our damn own heroines? But good for you. I'm so... I know we just met, but I already feel so proud. And thank you so much for doing your work, for real. Also, can we dig a little bit more with your publishing journey? Because like we were saying, you were going through depression and obviously because going through all of this and getting your hopes up and then getting it squashed, like what were you doing to actively pick yourself back up and get back on your feet? Because I find you incredibly, incredibly resilient and persistent and it's very inspiring. Oh, thank you, Yin. It was mostly remembering how much I loved to write. I think that is key. I think that when you first start trying to get published, you forget that being a writer and being an author are two completely different things. In that when you're a writer, 
you're focusing on your passion. You're focusing on your words. You're focusing on putting a story out there that has never been in the world in that exact form before. But when you're an author, you have the business side of things to consider. You have the subjectivity of the industry in that you can send your work out to people. There's that saying that you could be the juiciest, ripest peach in the world. And somewhere out there, there will be someone who doesn't like peaches. That's very very (laughs) important for publishing because you can be the best writer ever. You could write the greatest story and still be told no over and over and over. And so you have to separate that being a writer and being an author is not always about talent. It's about perseverance. It's about wanting something more than anything you've ever wanted before and letting that desire to overcome help you push past all of the rejections because we all get rejections. I think that's really important to put out there. There is no one in our community who has been agented on the first try, who has been published on the very first try. And if they are, we don't want to talk about them Mm -hmm. (laughs) because rejection is just an inevitable part of our business. And once I learned that being told no is a natural and a normal thing, I felt like it was easier to keep pushing on. And I also, for a time when I told you that I had thought about quitting at the end of 2014, I decided to stop sending out queries. I decided to stop researching agents and stop looking at dream publishing houses and just write a story for myself. And that was the mindset that I had when I sat down to write Forest of a Thousand Lanterns because that violin story I told you about. We, Tamara and I sent that on submission to about 30 publishers and throughout 2015, we kept getting rejection after rejection. So rejection doesn't end even after you get an agent. And because I had gotten so much closer to my ultimate goal, it felt even more heartbreaking to be told no Mm. at that stage because I felt like I had gotten through the door and discovered that there were a whole series of other doors that would close in my face. And so in 2015, I was in that mire of sadness and depression and low self-esteem, and I decided to just write Forest of a Thousand Lanterns for myself. I had had the idea since I was 13 years old, but I had never felt worthy of writing it. I had never felt skilled enough. And so in 2015, I just said, you know, F this. I'm just going to write it because I love this story. I want to see an Asian heroine who's complex and complicated and allowed to be evil and undermining when she wants to be. And I wrote that book for myself, deciding that even if it never got published, it would be something that I had done for me, a story that I had told for me first. And when I showed it to Tamar, the fact that she liked it was just the cherry on top. I felt like I needed to recover from that brutal, brutal agenting process of eight years and then to be rejected from my first book on submission. I felt like Forrest was my therapy, even though I actually did want to get an actual therapist. Writing has always been such an outlet for me to release all of my feelings and all of my tensions and all of the times when I tell myself that I'm not worth it. When I write, I feel like all of that melts away. And that was my experience with Forrest was when I started feeling, you know, like I'm remembering why I got into this in the first place. I'm remembering what I'm doing this for. And my writer friends, my community over those eight years, that's the good thing about failing for so long is that during those eight years, when you're publicly blogging about your experiences, as I did, you gather quite a community of great people, Mm. like-minded kindred spirits. And I felt like I knew these people. I have said on Twitter before that the writing community pretty much raised me. I grew up during that decade between 
my early 20s and my early 30s, I was with these people and they knew me better than my own family did. And they never stopped rooting for me. Mm. They always kept pushing me and telling me that I could do it. And, you know, I felt like I wrote for us for them too. So in 2015, that was, that was my revelation. That was like, okay, I can keep going after all of that. I can do this. God, I love that so much. I have goosebumps everywhere. Oh my God. I'm like, I need some lotion, smooth it out. What's happening? You know, it's such a beautiful full circle when you mentioned that you wanted to seek out therapy, but writing in the end really was your form of therapy. And it reminded me at the very top, we were talking about when you first discovered like, you know, writing and blogging when you're 21, 22, 23, around that time was also around the time of the divorce. I just wonder if that was also a form of therapy with dealing with the divorce as well, not just the freedom of breaking away, but maybe it's something that you didn't feel comfortable talking about with your mom. Cause I know in a lot of Asian households with our parents' generation, I don't really hear, hey mom. So yeah, this is what I did with my hubby or my wifey <laughs> just the other night. And uh, we totally popped the condom. Like, I'm just like, wait, what? Like I hear like white friends talking to their parents. Like I'm able to actually surprisingly talk to my mom and joke around with her right now about all these things, which is shocking. And I'm lucky that I have that. But back then when I was a teenager, hell no, like oh, no, no way. Lord have mercy on my soul if I did. <laughs> and the thing is, I just do wonder like, it sounds like your upbringing was a bit more traditional and strict, like the usual Asian immigrant parenting. So I do wonder if that was also a way where you couldn't or really didn't feel comfortable talking to your mom about the actual divorce. Um, and I don't know if you ever were, were like, hey, mom, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Like, are you feeling better now that it's there's like a release from dad's hold or what? You know what I mean? Like, right, right. And I do wonder if that was a way of coping with that in your own way without feeling like you're burdening your mom to talk about how she's feeling. And also you didn't want to burden your mom from telling her how you're feeling about the divorce directly. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it was a time of a lot of emotional turmoil, obviously, for our whole family. And like you said, Asian families don't usually talk about emotional stuff. We're very stoic mm -mm. by nature. And we never say, I love you or anything like that. We show it in different ways, but we don't actually say it. And so we never discussed the divorce. We never talked about how she was feeling or how I was feeling. And now I'm wondering whether I never told her about the writing thing because I didn't want to burden her with one other thing to worry about yeah. after everything she had gone through after, you know, how tumultuous everything had been. Thank you for being so transparent, opening up. I, I always just love just like connecting human to human, like really like real talk. I appreciate that. Totally. Oh, so many Asian American kids have come up to me, so many Asian American teenagers. And it's amazing. It feels like siblings. It feels like I'm talking Aww. to you as my sibling. It yeah. felt like I was talking to them as my siblings because we had had such a similar upbringing. Like all yes. of our parents have this very stoic, very similar formulaic type of upbringing that they expose us to. And I, it feels wonderful to be able to talk to people about that and to tell them what you've been through because odds are that they've been through the same thing or something very similar or they've had an experience they can speak to that relates to your own. So it's really wonderful to be transparent, especially as Asian American who are a little bit more visible, who have a platform like we do, I think it's important to talk to people about where we've come from and what brought us to where we are. Because I've had so many Asian American teens come up to me and say, I didn't know that we could do this. Yeah. Being like Asians, we, how can we be in the arts? But it's so possible. And I feel like if I had seen 
an Asian American author and heard her talk the way that I try to talk to teens, I felt like my life would have been very different. Mm. I would have made these choices earlier. But like I try to do, I, I try never to regret any choices that I've made because I feel like every choice we've made in our lives has a purpose. It has a purpose. It brings us to where we need to be, where we should be. And so I feel like I'm in the right place right now. But I, I look back and I just think, you know, man, I wish I had Asian role models like like Yin or like Cindy Pond or like all these Asian authors that I look up to so much. I'm so glad that you have your exact story that you're sharing right now because or else you would not speak to the ones also going through depression, having to put their craft out in the world, you know? Like you went through years of this where had you started earlier, you likely would have been published, you know, probably at the age that you were hoping to when you were younger. But then you don't have this story to move and empower people and motivate them to let them know, listen, hang in there because it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's purposeful. There's always a specific reason as to why it's not working out a certain time and it will work out eventually at a different time. Oh, thank you, Yin. I really appreciate that. And I'm so glad I didn't, I was going to say, I'm so glad that I didn't get published when I was 21 or 22 with the stories that I was writing then. And I want to make it clear that everyone is different. There are some people who are 19, 20, 21, who are writing fantastic stories, who will handle the publishing industry with great maturity and grace. But I was not one of those people. I would have been a total arrogant, like big head if I had been published at that age, because I just wasn't ready. And I think what you were saying about how everything has a purpose, that applies to me completely. Those eight years I spent learning maturity, I learning humility, learning that I can take all of this hardship, I can take all of these no's and still come out and be successful at the end of them. Because sometimes you need that kick in the ass, you know, yes, sometimes yes. you need that push to become who you want to be. And I could not have written a book like Forrest 10 years ago because I just wasn't ready. I didn't have the tools. And I think there's something to be said about living life as well. Yes. Because as a young person, 19 or 20, you haven't seen enough of the world to be able to write in an informed way, to observe human nature, to observe people's characters and how the narrative can change when people change. And so I think at 30, it's a very different viewpoint that you have on the world. And that translates into your writing. And it certainly has for me. Talking about this as well, about the time our journey takes is all different for everybody. I'm assuming you did not have the same neuroscience. um, Sorry, what was the job where you were? I was a lab rat. Yes, yes. Neuroscience lab Mm -hmm. you were talking about. So did you continue with that job for those eight years in order to support yourself to continue writing? How were you able to financially support yourself? I always had a full-time day job. Two days after I walked in my college graduation, I had that lab rat job waiting for me. But you're right that I didn't work that job for the entire time that I was writing at night and on the weekends. I switched around a lot, and I've talked about this on Twitter with other author friends. I find it fortunate, even though I didn't think so back then, that I did not have a career. I had jobs. And Mm. I think that I just jumped from 
different types of employment that interested me or that looked appealing to me and that paid well and that had health insurance and medical insurance and all that jazz. After those three years in that lab, I went to write science news in Boston at this company that produced you know, specific detail-oriented news stories for clients' websites. So I specified in the pharmaceutical industry where you know some of the pharmaceutical websites wanted to have specific news stories about emerging research topics or healthcare topics. And I had to translate these research studies in such a way that regular people without a science background would understand them. So I found that in that way, it was the right type of job for me because I'd had my biology degree and I could also write. So it was kind of fun translating that way. And then after that, I worked for a pharmacist doing pretty much the same thing with like health and alternative medicine databases. And so I I tried to keep my degree alive. I tried to show my mom that her and my dad paying for my college wasn't a complete waste. Like I had to go out the window because I was working in these fields. So I always had a good day job, you know, but I always had this passion too at night and on the weekends that my true passion lay in the stories that I would write when I was away from the day job, even though the stage job was financing me and feeding me and keeping my electricity and my refrigerator running, I was still engaging in this passion that I'd always had. Dang. Okay. I'm just like here shaking my head with my mouth open. I'm like, (laughs) why is Julie so dang smart? Like, I'm like still stuck on the job where you had to translate medical stuff into my kind of reading to understand (laughs) I would feel so much anxiety, like, what the hell is going on? What is this? I mean, it feels like math, but it doesn't look like numbers. What is going on? No, no, there's no (sighs) math involved. There is no math involved. (laughs) My gosh, you are so badass. Holy crap. Oh, thanks, Yin. I know my mom hears your interview. She'd be like, "Mm mm-hmm, good daughter, good girl, (laughs) yes. Yin needs to take notes from Julie. You know it's just a front, Yin, because I was just using those paychecks to finance my electricity so I could plug my laptop in and write. Oh my God, but Julie, let's be real here. You are too modest and too humble. That is pretty freaking badass that you're able to use that side of your brain to survive and live well, um, knowing that it pays well and it also gives you the basic insurances. Very responsible of you. I am afraid I'm going to tell my mom to purposely ignore this episode so I don't hear backlash from my mom. And she's like, you see, you see, she knows what she's doing. Oh, stop. Well, she has a badass daughter and I hope you miss in the podcast because you are so brave and so badass. Being one of the few Asians in the entertainment industry, do you know how hard that, I mean, you know how hard that is. I don't have to ask you, but I can imagine how difficult that is to go into a room where nobody looks like you and you're fighting for a role that wasn't written for you. Like that is brave and badass. That is something that most Asians are not brave enough to do because we've been told by our parents, you will fail, you will fail, you will fail, but you did it anyway. So do not knock yourself at the expense of me, you know? Oh my God, you are so kind. Thank you for that. And I'm going to have to cut and paste that clip and send it to my mom if you don't mind. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Julie. You're so incredibly sweet. Seriously, I now... Want to dive in, um, is there a moment as well, like a specific example where you really hit really rock bottom? Mm -hmm. And if you could walk us through that story and how you got through it to inspire our listeners who go through that quite often, actually, I'd really appreciate it. 
Sure. I was telling you that the end of 2014 was a very dark time, and there were multiple reasons for that. Yeah. And one of those reasons was that about six months prior in the summer of 2014, I had been querying an, an agent, a really great agent who I will not name. She actually asked for an R&R, a revise and resubmit, in which I queried her. She really liked what I had to say, and she really liked the story of the violinist. And she called me on the phone. And when she called me on the phone, I thought to myself, this is it. This is the moment I've been waiting for for eight years. Like, it's going to happen, girl. (laughs) And when she called me, she didn't offer representation, but she kind of left the door open and that she said, "Okay, here are my ideas for revising your manuscript. If you fix them and I like the end product, then we'll see where we can go from there. And so I knew right away that if I performed this revision to her liking, this relationship could really happen. Like she could become my agent. And so over the next six months or so, I took all of her revision ideas to heart. And now it's important to acknowledge that I thought her ideas were good. Mm, Okay. I would not implement her ideas if I had not agreed with them just to please her, because that's not what I believe in. I'm very strong and firm about my story. Like this has to be a story that I envision, but I took into mind that her revisions and her edits were really smart and they would make the story stronger. And so for six months, I worked relentlessly on this revision and toward the end of 2014, around December, that was when she rejected me. months of all of this hard work. Oh my God. She wrote back, I'm so sorry, Julie. I just don't think that it's going to work out after all because I don't like the story now. (laughs) (gasps) Even after all? Yes. Yes. Even after all that work. But like we were talking about earlier in the podcast, everything has a purpose. And by the end of those six months, even though she had said no, I had a really strong story. I had the strongest possible version of that story that I might ever have before going on submission, before working with an editor. But unfortunately, I couldn't see that clearly at that time, you know, because I was in this mire of depression and sadness and just telling myself over and over, like, see, your dad was right. See, they were, they were right to tell you you would fail because you tried so hard. You did everything in your power and people Uh, still don't like your book. People still say, no, you're not worth it. And it was just a really dark time. I would say that was the darkest time in those eight years of trying to get published as an adult. That was the dark night of my soul, as we say on the plot arc sometimes when we're plotting out a narrative. It was just the point at my life where I had entered a crossroads where I was like, I could continue trying to get published and beating myself up and being told no, or I could just, you know do a medical or science-related job and just forget about this whole writing thing like my parents have been trying to encourage me to do all this time. But as I told you before, in February was when Tamar offered representation because this manuscript was still out with people. And when the agent who gave me the R&R rejected me, I had the clarity of mind, at least, for that one moment to send this new manuscript to all of the agents who were still reading. So they got the best possible manuscript. But after I did that, after I hit send, I just told myself, no, it's not going to work. You did that for nothing. You just bothered all of these people and wasted their time for nothing because they're just going to come back and say that, no, I don't like this book. I can't sell it. I don't know what to do with it. You're talented, but maybe get a day job and just forget about this. So that was my darkest point, the end of 2014. Oh my God. Thank you for sharing that because we've heard some listeners jumping into our private Facebook group 
mentioning how they've been submitting and submitting and submitting mm-hmm. and not hearing back. So mm-hmm. this will resonate deeply with it's those specific brutal. storytellers. So thank you because they look up to you and they see like oh. you've made it. And to know that you've gone through something very similar is giving them so much hope. So thank you for that. Oh, of course. That's so sweet of them. Um, thank you to everyone who's listening, who has encouraged me and and talked about me like, like you're looking up to me. That's so surreal. And at the same time, I want to say that I had this saying in my mind the entire time, and that is that the day you give up could be the day before your dream comes true. Mm. I had that in my mind the whole time because even as I was tempted to give up, I knew that another day could bring something completely different. The next day is always new. It's full of possibilities that you don't know existed before. So when you go to bed and you feel so brought down and so dejected, just remember that the next day could bring something that you don't see. And that's exactly what happened to me. That was so, so good. Thank you. Julie, do you mind if we jump into our questions from our patrons and our Facebook group? Not at all. Let's do it. Thank you so much. Okay, so Melissa C., uh, she's a super storyteller, and she wrote, ah, in all caps with like a million exclamation marks. I love Julie's books. I gave my critique partners Forest of a Thousand Lanterns as their Christmas presents last year. My question is, what advice do you have for someone who's getting ready to query an own voices novel? Oh, Melissa, thank you so much for buying for us for your critique partners. That is the sweetest. Um, The advice I would have is to be proud of what you're writing. I think to have pride and to have confidence in your own work as an own voices writer is really important because a lot of times we hear about people sending out, say, an Asian fantasy to a publisher and then thinking in their head, like, oh, shoot, they've already bought an Asian fantasy. They already have the one Asian fantasy that they're going to buy. And I think that's really sad because white people don't think about it that way. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, they don't think about how they've written a fantasy, but, oh, no, that house has, like, 35 other fantasies. They're not going to buy their fantasy. So it's important to have pride. Whatever marginalization you are with, just remember that you should be proud of your story and that your story is important. Just remember that when you send that story out, there will be people out there who are hoping to hear from an own voices writer too. Okay, you're going to be bombarded now with more. So one of our listeners, Janella Angelis, um, she wrote... Ah, Julie, not a question, just a flail because she's the best and one of the wisest and loveliest writers in the community. Can't wait to listen to her episode. I think you guys know each other. Yes, yes, we are good friends. I love Janella. Amazing. So we have Lacelle Sambury. She wrote, amazing, love, Julie. My question is, as someone who is planning to write a duology myself, I would love to know how necessary she feels planning ahead is when writing a series. For example, if she already had the ideas and outlines for both books when she went on submission for the one, or if she did the ideas for book two after, or a mix of both. That is a fantastic question. I am a plotter at heart. I like to plot everything. Even when I was little, I had like the color-coded notebooks and the trapper keepers. So I'm very, very organized type A person. And I've brought that into my own writing. So please be aware that this might not work for you, but I definitely plot 
extensively before I start writing a story. And when I had Force of a Thousand Lanterns out on submission, my agent, Tamar, recommended that I write a synopsis of the ideas that I had for book two, of what I envisioned book two to look like. So I think it's important that once you have the first book written, you should at least have some vague idea, even if you haven't plotted as extensively. Just have an idea of what you want book two to be and how it connects to book one. Because I think that if your first book gets purchased, the editor will obviously want to know, you know, what are you working on next? How do you envision the rest of the series going? So I think it's always good to have that backup, to have that insurance of a synopsis ready to go, ready to send them. They'll be impressed too by how prepared you are. Desiree Falardo, she said, this is so exciting. I got to meet Julie and Stacey Lee on her kingdom tour. Such a genuine, thoughtful, and well-spoken author. She took the time to talk to everyone in her signing line and was such a joy. Villain stories are my favorite, and I loved reading Forrest so much, so I can't wait for this episode. So she just wanted to let you know. So I thought that was super sweet. Thank you so much. That's wonderful. I'm so glad to have met everyone in that tour stop. It was one of my favorites, because Stacey Lee is one of my favorite authors. But I remember the attendees from that night being so fantastic and thoughtful. So thank you for that. Oh, that's amazing. Okay, I love that. Do you mind giving our entire community a snapshot from your own perspective of your two books? Sure. So Forest of a Thousand Lanterns and Kingdom of the Blazing Phoenix are two halves of the duology. The duology is called the Rise of the Empress series because both books are about the rise of a very different empress. And they are basically an Asian retelling of the fairy tale of Snow White set in a fantasy imperial China. The first book, Forest of a Thousand Lanterns, focuses on the rise of a dark queen. Her name is Shifeng, and she originates as a young girl in a village who has a very impoverished existence. But her aunt has always promised her that one day, if she has the smarts and the inclination and the cruel nature that's required, she might become empress of all Feng Lu. And the book details her journey from this small, poor village into the imperial court itself, where she discovers her true destiny. Kingdom of the Blazing Phoenix follows that up by following Shifeng's stepdaughter, Jade, who has been exiled from the imperial court at a young age. And it's about her receiving a summons from Shifeng back to the palace before she turns 18 and she doesn't know why. And when she comes back, she finds that her empire is in dire straits due to Shifeng's rule and that it's all up to her to save her empire. Dang. That was so good. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to continue to the next question then. Ashley Griffin said, Yay, I am flailing with happiness because Forest of a Thousand Lanterns was my last read of 2018 and I loved it. Question, what other fairy tales or princess stories would Julie love to see retold through a non-Western cultural lens like she did with the Snow White tale? Ooh, I like that one. That's such a great question, Ashley. And thank you for saying that about Forrest. I hope you enjoyed it. You know, I've always been fascinated with the idea of an Asian Little Mermaid. I think that would be so cool. I mostly because I want to see an Asian Ursula, like yes. a badass Asian <laughs> half octopus woman who casts spells on this girl and steals her voice and does nefarious things with it. So I think I would say the Little Mermaid. I'm so glad you agree, Yin. Yes. Oh my God. Can we cast like either Margaret Cho or Sandra? O as Ursula, please. It would be incredible. Oh my gosh. Yes. Cause I'm obsessed with mermaids and yes, 
about an Asian retelling? Yes, yes, I love that answer. Okay, so next comment, not question, is from Judy Lin. I think you might be familiar with Judy. Yes, I do know her. There we go. So she said, no question, just excitement with lots of exclamation marks. I am so looking forward to this episode. So I thought I love seeing support. And the next one, another comment we have from Olivia Liu. She writes cries. She's literally crying. She's saying, <laughs> we're getting Queen Julie on the show and oh. three of the crying face emojis. Um, She said, I am so happy. And then additional three emojis with like the hearts all over the cute little emoji face. So just letting you know, we got another person there who's just so excited. If Olivia could see my face right now, it would just be the giant hearts eyes emoji. That's my face right now. <laughs> You're so sweet. Okay. So the next one from Stephanie I, and she said she met you at the eight HB stop of her book tour. Huntington Beach. I remember well. Yes. There we go. She said she was the one in the robe. She'll know what I mean. So That's she's right. <laughs> and then she said that you mentioned that you did a lot of research when writing your books. And Stephanie's wondering whether it was partly because you felt pressure of being authentic to Asian history or culture. Like, did you feel the need to get it right and hold yourself accountable to a certain standard of authenticity? And Stephanie said she knows this question is kind of unfair because she doubts white authors are ever asked this, but she asks particularly because there's so few Asian stories in American Western publishing written by of Asian descent authors. And so it's like a single book becomes representative. And also a lot of non-Asians writing Asian stories for the aesthetic get a lot wrong. So I thought it was really well thought out and I, I really loved her questions. Yes, I completely remember Stephanie from the Huntington Beach stop. And the robe reference is because she was wearing this gorgeous robe that looked like the cover of Kingdom of the Blazing Phoenix. Because oh it was God. gorgeous. It had red and black. And I noticed her right away. She stood up from the crowd. But <laughs> this is a fantastic question. And I want to put it out there that as an Asian author you are going to be treated differently from white authors. It comes with the territory. You're going to be asked much different questions. You're going to be put on panels that are all about diversity. And I'm not saying that's right, but it happens. And so these questions are totally fair to ask, especially coming from another Asian American person. And I think that when you're writing about any culture, even if it's your own, you have to write it with respect. And with respect comes research. You cannot appropriate. Appropriation comes in when you're cherry picking details willy-nilly without any respect to where they originated from, to how real people feel about these cultures. Because even though it's a fantasy, it still touches on real life situations. It touches on their culture, on their families, on their traditions. And so even if I were writing a Vietnamese story, I would definitely still do research because it's important to be respectful. It's important to bring in that authenticity, that genuine quality that you don't get from someone who's just writing a story that's inspired by Asia without really understanding why they are. And I think that's really important to be respectful and authentic. And doing research just comes with a territory. It's something that all authors should do. That was a beautiful wrap up to the listener Q&A and I appreciate you and all of your time. And do you mind also letting us know what are you most excited about right now? I know you mentioned that you're working on another project. I'm really excited about the third book in my Penguin deal. It is not part of the duology, but it's set in the same world as Forest and Kingdom. But it takes place a number of years later with completely new characters, and it's inspired by a Vietnamese folktale that my mom told me while growing up. So I'm really excited. I can't share the title yet, but we do have a title. We have a cover, and it's coming out this fall. Oh, my gosh. 
So I'm really psyched about that. I really hope people like that. I'm actually in the copy edit stage or so, or will about to be. And so it's it's going to be finished soon, I oh hope. Oh my God, congratulations. And I know your mom's going to be so proud too. Thank you. Yeah, she's been she's read both of my books and she offers her sage advice and wisdom. But she's been particularly interested in this third book because it touches on the river market because she grew up outside of the river. So she knows all about the market dynamics and all the people and the settings. So it's been very near and dear to her heart too. Oh my God. What a great mother daughter project in a way. (laughs) I love that. It brings you guys even closer. Right. I'm so happy for you, Julie. That's incredible. Now, before we wrap it up, what are some books that you can share with us for our listeners to check out? One book that I'm really looking forward to is a debut. I read a manuscript of it last year, and it's called The Girl King by Mimi Yu. It's another Asian fantasy about a girl who is meant to take over the throne after her father steps down or dies. But instead, she finds herself on the run for her life as her brutal cousin takes the throne. And it's this beautiful, beautiful story of legends and mythology and gods. And it was one of my favorite reads of 2018, and I'm sure it will be a lot of people's favorites in 2019. So that's one that I really loved, and it's coming out in January. And I also loved Starfish by Akemi Don Bowman. I just read that recently. It's a contemporary. I usually read a lot of fantasies, but every now and then I try to read outside of my genre. And Starfish by Akemi Don Bowman is about this artist, this young artist who is dealing with parental abuse. And she's half Asian. And so she feels this struggle between her two identities. And it's just this gorgeous, poetic, moving story of a girl growing into herself, which is so important important for so many of us Asians and half Asians out there. I think it's a wonderful story. Let's see. There's one other book. So there's a duology written by my friend Heather Kaczynski that I really enjoy. I actually haven't read the second book yet, but I'm meaning to read the first book again before I do that. The first book is called Dare Mighty Things. And the second book is called One Giant Leap. And it's a duology about this young Indian-American teenager who competes for a spot to go into space. And it's this brutal competition. She's so smart. I love reading about girls in STEM. And the ending of Dare Mighty Things is definitely going to make you want to keep reading. So those are the three that I have on my radar. Oh, and I'm currently reading The Poet X by Elizabeth Acevedo. And it's fantastic so far. Amazing. That is so good. All right. Do you have any small manageable steps that you would advise writers to take every week towards accomplishing their writing goals? That is such a great question. I think I would say to try to free write whenever you can. Don't just work on the projects that you're working on because sometimes we lose motivation for that. One of my goals for 2019 is to keep a notebook and find writing prompts online. Pinterest in particular has a lot of them where it'll prompt you to write something like talk about a character who has a bad day at the supermarket and then something changes and something magical happens. So you just take your notebook and don't plan ahead. Don't think about it too hard. For 10 to 15 minutes, set the timer on your phone. Just write, just free write. Let everything flow out of your pen. I find that sometimes by doing that, I get more motivation to work on the project that I might be struggling on. So free writing is a really great way to keep your powers in check, you know, to to keep 
working on that skill that you have while chugging away at this other project that you might have lost motivation for. That is so good. All right. Now let's wrap it up with you telling us where our listeners can find you online to say hi, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, anything. Sure. My official website is juliedow.com. And I try to keep the events page and the contact page updated quite frequently there. You can also find me on Twitter at Jules underscore rights. Jules is my nickname. So that's why I chose that handle. And then on Instagram, I'm at Julie C. Dow. Thank you so much. And I really enjoyed this conversation. And you were just such a genuine human being. Like it was really such an honor to get to meet you. Your story is so freaking inspiring. And just to hear also like obviously getting to know just from talking with you, but also hearing it as well in addition to from the community themselves, how kind you are and how open of a book you are with your entire journey with the publishing route and all of that. It just is truly inspiring for other up-and-comer writers. Thank you for having me on the show, Yin. And as I mentioned before, I've listened to 88 Cups of Tea for years. And I have cried over so many of the episodes thinking that my dream would never come true because all of the authors talk about how difficult their journeys are. Like, I don't know why we don't internalize that, that it's so hard to get published. And listening to your podcasts where people are so open and you're so encouraging and inspiring, I feel like that really kept me going too. And I'm sure that you've done that for so many writers out there. Oh my God, Julie, you're going to make me cry. Oh my God. Thank you so much for that. That means so much. You have no idea. Really. Thank you. You just made my entire month. Thank you so much. Thank you for kicking off 2019 so beautifully for me. Julie, you're awesome. I'm going to let you go to continue on with your day. And thank you so much for giving me so much time. Oh my gosh. Of course. It was such a pleasure talking to you. And that wraps up our episode with Julie Dow. Julie, I had such a great time chatting with you. Thank you so much for being so honest and being fully transparent throughout our entire conversation and sharing so much of yourself. Thank you. Thank you. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in. As always, please be sure to drop by and say hi to Julie over on Twitter at Jules underscore writes. Head over to 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Julie dash Dow for her show notes page to download her writing prompt. And you can also find all the books and resources mentioned in her episode over on her show notes page too. A friendly reminder, we have episode air dates for author Naomi Novik and literary agent Tao Lei set for the month of May. Patrons at the Silky Chickens with Balloons tier or Snails with Males tier get access to their interviews right now. We'll be releasing early access interviews for our patrons for future upcoming interviews with guests like Samantha Shannon and many more. If you would love early access to our interviews in addition to hearing the deleted audio that you can't find elsewhere, head over to patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea to sign up as a proud patron and thank you so much in advance for supporting 88 cups of tea. Have a killer week and I'll catch you not next Thursday, but the one after that. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.